Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue of BTN. We're back on Take 10 Podcast. Ahead of the holiday break coming up here, I'm sure a lot of people are traveling, a lot of people are relaxing, watching sports. We got bowl season coming up and we got gift season coming up. So uh, this episode is actually a, a great opportunity to potentially plant a gift idea in some of uh, you Big Ten fans out there because we have... Ed Sherman back on the show. Ed joined us back in the spring when he was kind of doing a preliminary uh, book promotion for his Big Ten book that recently came out. It's kind of a comprehensive encyclopedia, coffee table style book on the history of the Big Ten Conference. And we welcome him back to the show for this episode now that the book is out. And he uh, talked more in depth about what's in his his big project. Uh, The book is called This Is Big and how the process has gone in marketing the book himself, promoting it, and basically how it makes for a uh, really cool collectible and piece of literature for Big Ten fans out there. So got Ed Sherman on for about 20 minutes to, uh, to chat about Big Ten history, and I uh, appreciate him coming back on. And then after that, we welcomed Harold Shelton back to the show after a week-long break. If you've not listened to the show before, Harold is our researcher here at BTN who regularly joins the show pretty much every week to talk about Big Ten basketball, Big Ten football in depth, usually every team, uh, most teams if not every team, and today we went extra long with Harold because there is a whole bowl season coming up that we probably will not get to chat about until after most of them are over. And there is plenty of Big Ten basketball to talk about with every team having played by the end of Wednesday two Big Ten conference games, uh, getting their two December Big Ten conference games out of the way before we pick back up with conference play in January. So a ton to talk about with uh, Harold. That'll come up after Ed Sherman's interview, which we will get to right now. Once again, Ed's a longtime Chicago sports writer with the Chicago Tribune and now has published a all-encompassing book on the history of the Big Ten. And he's on to talk about it. That interview starts right now. I'm very pleased to welcome Ed Sherman back to the show. He's a longtime Chicago sports writer and author who has recently published a book called This Is Big, How the Big Ten Set the Standard in College Sports. Ed, how is your holiday season going? You seem quite busy. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a different kind of holiday season, that's for sure, to have a book out and be able to talk about it with people like you has been that's kind of the fun of doing something like this, you get to share what you've done with other, you know, with everyone. Yeah, congrats on on the, getting the book out. And since I last had you on, I think it was in March, the book was not yet published back then. So I'm curious, how much work has gone into the whole process during kind of the home stretch here, and what goes into taking a book across the finish line with promoting, distributing, and all that? Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty interesting. That since this is the first time I. I oversaw the production of a book. The, the Big Ten is the publisher, but I basically oversaw the production of the book, you know, till the end. Um, I kind of likened the, I thought it was, things were going really smoothly until in, in June and, and, you know, up until May. And I'm like, things are going too smoothly. And then sure enough, you know, the last 10% felt like climbing the last thousand feet at uh, Mount Everest without any oxygen. It was really, you know, it was a lot of work to get it to the finish line, but definitely, and a lot of people helping out, including people at the Big Ten, to make this possible, to make this the best possible book, to lock it down and to make sure everything was perfect and got it just right. And so the end result was definitely worth it. Yeah, you've been running around doing a lot of media appearances. Like we said, it's during a busy time of year the holidays what's been maybe the hardest or most unexpected part of doing so much of the legwork on your own um i don't know if it's been hard you know i think it's been i think it's been really very gratifying to have you know to see the reaction of uh of people who you know want the book i just somebody just sent me a copy of the book i don't know how they got my address and asked me to send me a copy with they put twenty dollars in there from Texas and asked me to sign it to her husband and, and send it back. And I don't really know this person. I have no idea how, I just opened this up, just got their address. Um, you know, I mean, how, how they got my address, I'm not exactly sure, but that's the kind of stuff that's been, you know, that's a neat thing that someone is reaching out to you. They, they want uh, your autograph just earlier, you know, a friend of my, uh, someone I knew 
bought eight books and they wanted me to autograph them. And so we went and met this morning and, and, and did that. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's really neat and, and exciting. And, uh, you know, it's, just, it's all about just trying to get the word out. And there's so many different platforms, but you also are competing with a lot of different people who are also, you know, trying to, you know, you're, you're reaching. I think there's more platforms, but there's also a lot of competition to get people's attention. And so I think that's been probably the biggest challenge. And so thankfully, some people like you and others, we are getting the word out because we are starting. We, we have had a nice response to people buying the book. Yeah, and we'll get into some more early feedback. I'm going to ask you about that in just a little bit. But for those who maybe didn't listen when I had you on back in March or who haven't heard what the book is all about yet, can you kind of fill the audience in on just what the book is and and what sets it apart from maybe anything else like it? Well, I think what sets it apart, it's 352 pages. It's a big big book, literally big. It weighs five pounds. So you're going to feel it when you pick it up, but it's you know it's a big book as we've been saying for a big conference. Um, it's 300. There's it's 352 pages, more than 300 photos. So it's got that coffee table feel to it. I mean, it, it's a, it's a coffee table sized book, but it, there's also 80,000 words of type in there. So I call it like a hybrid because I wanted I didn't. The photos are spectacular. We did more photos than we we, we expanded the book by more, almost 100 pages because we had so many great photos. We felt like we had to use them, and it, they helped tell the story. But I also wanted didn't want the entries to read like you know short caption or like a Wikipedia encyclopedia entry. I really wanted to do some storytelling, and I really think I did with the, in many ways telling the, the many stories of what made the Big Ten unique. Why? And the central question is what what made the Big Ten what it is. And I try to answer that in the book in many ways through key developments and um, things that kind of define the conference over time. Iconic athletes and uh, coaches, of which there are many in the Big Ten, and then and then um, through a timeline, and, um, and then each school has a four-page section where I kind of where I highlight more athletes and coaches that you're going to go. Oh, I didn't realize that guy went there, or this guy went, you know, went to that school, and um, and you know, and I think that's been that was kind of an interesting part of the book too. So a lot of different ways of just trying to say. And this has been a conference that has a tremendous amount of history. It dates back to 1895, and I don't know that I got everything in the book. I think that would be impossible, but uh, I think I got a lot of it in there. Yeah, you're not kidding. I got my copy, and it is uh, it is massive, and, and you fans out there can get their copy at BigTenBook.com. So kind of back to the feedback you were talking about, what have you heard from either fans or other members in the media so far about uh, some of the reception you've gotten back on the book. I know Jim Delaney was involved. I've seen other high-profile people in sports media sharing their copies. So uh, what's been the feedback? What's yeah, the feedback Delaney, been like? Well, you know, I worked very close at the conference, and that's something I really am stressing. That the, you know, Jim Delaney, I, I brought this idea to them in June of about 2017. Let's do a history book, and they were all in. And um, Obviously, they're publishing the book, but it's more than just publishing, you know, putting their money behind it. I mean, they really, uh, the, the support that I got from the conference, from Jim Delaney on down, was, just, I, I say it's been overwhelming. I mean, it still is overwhelming to me how much enthusiasm and passion and energy they put into making this book come out. So I'm very thankful for that. And I think the, you know, I think that the, 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 the reaction I'm getting is that people are, uh, I don't think they expected this kind of a book. I mean, I think when you, and I don't know how you felt, Alex, when you got it, your copy, but I've been actually making a point of when I do these radio interviews of trying to, these interviews of trying to get a copy of the book into people's hands. And the reaction generally is, wow, I didn't expect this. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're very impressed. Some, you know, and uh, I think that uh, the photography, I think people love the photography, some great photos in the book. So we had so many great photos that uh, we blew out the book. We added a hundred pages, and um, and we did these montages throughout the book that kind of get at the culture and the vibe of being in the Big Ten with fans, uh, with uh, fans and the bands and the cheerleaders and mascots, and got a great montage of just terrific. Uh, pictures of celebrations of the moment the teams won the title and just the great shots of teams celebrating. So just a lot in the book. But I think that the, you know, the overall impression is people really enjoy the book and, and, it, uh, and my designer also, I give him a lot of credit. He did a great job making this 
book look like a piece of art. Yeah, it really does. And, and I'm curious, have there been any stories or parts of the book that have especially maybe resonated with, with somebody that you've talked to, an anecdote that you've included in the book people didn't know about? Because I know you mentioned on our last interview that there, there's plenty of little nuggets in there that people might not have known about before. Well, you know, I think everyone, I think people are, you know, starting to read the book and they and they see different things. And I think that, um, I think there's a lot of, God, I didn't know this guy went to that school or I forgot that this guy played there. You know, you look at, um, I do a, a section on, uh, on multi-sport athletes. And, you know, it's an incredible list of athletes and guys who played other sports that you don't even think of. Dave Winfield, uh, uh, who uh, went to Minnesota and obviously a Hall of Fame baseball player, but we have him pictured playing basketball. He was a starting forward for the Gophers, and he was actually, even though he didn't play football, he was actually drafted in the NFL. He's the only athlete, I believe, who has ever drafted in all three sports, and they were just because he was such an incredible athlete. Kirk Gibson, I have pictured in the book, not as a great baseball player, but he was a phenomenal football player at Michigan State. Great receiver. And so, you know, you see things like that, and it's kind of like, wow, that kind of didn't realize that uh, that that happened and also I think a little bit of you know again you talk about trying to put some of these <clears throat> things in context and you look at um, Penn State and you know it's fun it's fun to talk to someone today who's, who was a Penn State guy who never you know I'm older obviously and I, I can remember well for most of my life Penn State was an independent for a long time and this person never knew anything but Penn State being in the Big Ten because it's going on 30 years so a lot of things like that that you kind of when you see it on paper and you see the pictures and and kind of the the, the, um, the timeline that goes along with it it really kind of strikes how much history has gone in the conference and, and, and what has made the conference what it is. Yeah and speaking of Penn State I know you get into this in the book but was there ever a consideration of changing the name of the Big Ten when Penn State was added because, you know, you look at like the Pac-10 changed to the Pac-12, but the Big Ten has kept right. that iconic brand. How did that all play out? So that's, that's a great question because that's kind of when people, that's one of the, when people ask, you know, what, what was my goal for the book? Um, I kind of go back to this and I write about this and I have a, a section in the book on the Penn State uh, expand, just an expansion keying off of Penn State and obviously going to Nebraska, Rutgers and Maryland. Uh, and why that was such a huge turning, you know, a huge moment for the Big Ten. And there's a sidebar when Jim Delaney talks about, um, you know, he had just started at the Big Ten when it was, um, when when they expanded, wasn't kind of imbued fully in the culture and what the Big Ten meant. He was just a new commissioner. And so his natural question when Penn State was added uh, was, okay, what are we going to change the name to? Because obviously... Big Ten was no longer 10, it was going to be 11. And he got this immediate feedback uh, from people, this uh, blowback from people, we're not changing the name, we're the Big Ten. You know, and, and even Penn State said, we, did, we joined the Big Ten. And, you know, obviously at that moment, he realized, as did others, that the, Penn, that the Big Ten was more than just a number. It was a culture, it was a brand, it meant something to people. And um, and that's what I kind of tried to get at in the book. Uh, what is the Big Ten? Why why is that not, why is that label so significant? And why hasn't why has it remained the Big Ten even though now there's 14 schools? Because it means more than a number. It means a whole almost 130 years of history, and, and its place in sports is you know, in college sports and in sports in general is you know right at the top of the upper, you know, at the top of the elite of the elite. Yeah, I'm glad that that decision was made not to change the name because now you look at it and the logo and the branding, it's right there on the front of your book. It's just very even, very symmetrical. I think the logo is genius with the 1G looking like a 10 um, and also spelling out the name. Uh, I think Big Ten's done a great job just branding overall uh, over the years. And I'm, I'm just curious, what were some of your main resources when doing the research for the book? Because until now, you know, there aren't that many comprehensive resources out there there's no encyclopedia so how did you handle kind of that mountain of research well there actually were two history books there was one written in in the late 1960s by the second commissioner tuck wilson Mm -hmm. wrote a book in which he not only documented about the first 70 years of the conference but he also gave his views and then 1995 and the 100th anniversary my old friend from the university of illinois dale ratterman did did a book 
again, kind of going year by year, looking at the key events for that year. So I had a little bit of a timeline uh, of things to kind of draw upon. That really helped greatly. Um, I took a lot of, I took uh, content from Big Ten Network, especially from their Icon TV series, which I credit in the book, uh, given me, you know, they gave me for those Icon athlete coach uh, uh, stories. I got a lot of contact from that. And just in general, then there's a lot of, there's, you know, I have a pretty long bibliography in the book. I mean, there's just so much out there. And, it, and it's, you know, compared to when those other guys did the book, you know, now you just do a Google search and boom, you have everything. You know, Google's our best friend these days. If you're a historian like I am, um, it's very easy to find a lot of stuff. And uh, so it was fun kind of trying to find stuff. And then, you know, the other part was finding stuff that you didn't know. And you went, wow, I didn't know that. And so, you know, that was, uh, that was very enjoyable to do that. Yeah, we talked about the origins of Big Ten Network when you were on the show last time. Your book gets us into that quite a bit uh, as well. So I'm curious what you think the impact of BTN has had on, you know, not just the strength of the conference, but on college athletics in general. Because I look at it and you see, you know, you have Minnesota and Indiana this year having breakout years in football. you got basketball programs like Rutgers digging themselves out of, out of what's been a bad history. And I think the lucrative TV contracts have a lot to do with these trends. So I'm wondering how much you think the, uh, the network plays into that. Tremendous, a ton. <laughs> in one, in, quickly, it's it's huge. It's been a complete game changer for the Big Ten, and I write about that again. That you know, when you talk about turning point moments, I have a long section on the found, founding the Big Ten, and Jim kind of Delaney gives the backstory about how the network really was was founded or created uh, off of um, him being underwhelmed by an initial offer from ESPN in the early 2000s when their TV deal was up. And he said, you know, I'm going to do this. I don't like what you're offering me. I'm going to, he had played around with the idea of doing a network and and he went ahead and did it and everyone kind of scoffed. Yeah, good luck with that. Who's going to watch a network on one conference? How are you going to fill up the programming? And uh, and very famously, I write about uh, the trouble they had getting distribution on the cable systems and how there was that the cable companies didn't buy in until they saw, until they went on the air in 2007 and people heard or saw what they were missing and they demanded getting it on the system. And um, since then, it's just been a huge success financially. I mean, it goes without saying it, it's, it's a huge win- windfall for the conferences, but even more so from the aspect of exposure, of, of getting not only football and basketball, but some of these other sports, volleyball, wrestling, um, have been huge popular sports on these networks. They've developed these following that they never really had before beyond the core fan of that sport. And um, so that's been huge. I think the exposure being coast to coast. I have two brothers who live in California, and they're able to watch Illinois games. We, they both went to Illinois, you know, uh, you know, went that era on Big Ten Network. So the exposure, you can't, you know, what's, what, what number did you put on that? It's a huge number. So I think it's been a complete game changer. And it's, it, you know, obviously with everyone else, um, other conferences soon tried to follow suits uh, with their own networks, but none has done it quite as well as the Big Ten. Sticking with the theme of the changes that TV has kind of brought about, I see some complaints, especially working in social media, a lot of complaints from fans and sometimes more traditional sports writers about some of the shifts like 20 conference basketball games or, or especially Friday night football games. That that gets a lot of negative feedback. So as a uh, sports writer yourself, what do you think about some of those other changes that have helped bring exposure and, and the impacts they've had? Well, you know, I think so. Uh, I think it's kind of, again, what the market brings, you know, what the market demands and how much you how it's the conference much the sports entity wants to do as far as trying to maximize profits, maximize demand versus maintaining tradition. Um, it's a very delicate balance, uh, but I do think that, you know, that everything begins and ends with, you know, all change is kind of difficult to, um, to uh, accept in the beginning. It just feels different. And, and I think that after a while, you know, people come to accept it, and I think that's what you're kind of getting a little bit now with what the Big Ten's doing with some of the some of their changes. I like you know having more conference basketball games. I don't know why people would complain about that. I think the conference is terrific, and 
conference basketball is uh, Big Ten basketball is great. It's going to be a great Big Ten. So you already started. You could see if there's so many teams that are competitive and close. I think it's going to be uh, just a terrific uh, slate of Big Ten games and any you know every night you, you play. So I would want that. The Friday night games. I mean, again, you know, people. I think that if you're playing in it, you might not like it. But if you're sitting at home on a Friday night. Um, you know, and you're looking for, want to watch a Big Ten game, it's nice to have on. So, again, it's kind of what they want, what people want. What the conference wants to do is try to maximize their exposure. It gives them another uh, slot to kind of showcase Big Ten football. And uh, so while people might complain about it, it also helps them on the other end as far as, you know, giving them that exposure that, you know, that, um, that helps grow the program, maybe with recruits and more donor dollars, more people being interested, saying, hey, I'm watching the game, I want to go there next time. So pluses and minuses to everything. Yep, and speaking of exposure, you know, with the holidays in full swing, how long does the uh, the book tour go on for you? What is your schedule looking like? Uh, is the Blitz going to continue through the winter here? Yeah, I don't know about the Blitz, but, you know, I, I'm trying to get the word out, especially with the holidays. Um, people hopefully uh, will think about not only the book for themselves but I think it's I've been kind of saying it's a great you're one click away from getting that perfect gift for the sports fan by going to BigTenBook.com I think I've signed a lot of books for people that have bought it as gifts because they know that that, that their sports fan you know, is, is going to really enjoy it a Big Ten fan's really going to enjoy it someone who went to Illinois or Northwestern you know or Ohio State um so and there's and I th- I want to stress there's content on every school in the book, and um, you know I tried to kind of even it out. Obviously, there's some more than others, but there's going to be something for everyone to read in the book from every Big Ten school, and uh, that was something I really wanted to do because the conference is made up of 14 schools, and uh, so I wanted everyone every school to be represented. Absolutely, and once again. You can get This Is Big at BigTenBook.com. It looks uh, great, like you said, on a coffee table, a mantle, and then when you pop it open, it's got all the Big Ten knowledge you'll ever need. So, Ed, appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time, and best of luck with the uh, the rest of the book tour here. I appreciate it. Thanks, yeah. All right, thanks once again to Ed for jumping back on the show. Always good chatting with him. Very knowledgeable and uh, very cool project that uh, he deserves a lot of credit and a lot of praise for completing and for uh, getting out there to make everyone out there aware of uh, of the book that is available now. So like we talked about, BigTenBook.com. All right, toss it over now to Harold Shelton, our, our in-house researcher here at BTN. Harold, a big part of the show. Have him on nearly weekly to chat in depth about big time basketball and football and we do just that coming up here over the next 40 minutes or so so i'll toss it over to h as we call him for some uh some deep big time basketball big time football talk that discussion starts right now all right back again in the lab with harold shelton took a week off last week it was your birthday week h first of all happy belated second of all how was your special day? Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, it was good. Definitely enjoyed it. You know, uh, it was my Rasheed Wallace year, you know, 36. So uh, definitely enjoyed it. A uh, holiday party fell on my birthday, so that was a good way to spend it. Uh, my wife actually threw me a surprise party on that Saturday, so I had a, a lot of people by the house. Uh, definitely shout out to her for that. Good to let off some steam before today, National Signing Day, which I know... Uh, it's kind of a, you know, place quite the burden on your shoulders, we'll put it that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a long day. I mean, I don't know if it's any more stressful than like a normal college football week, but just that particular day of six hours of television, constantly hitting refresh on the 247 page to see, you know, which teams moved up or down, if there's a new commit. You know, Nebraska made my life really interesting considering they got like three guys today and that kind of, you know, influenced how they were ranked. Uh, throughout the day but you know I know it's it's a huge thing in college football and I know it's a very important piece and we, we got to do our job and cover it correctly yeah recruiting's wild man like that's kind of how I got my start covering college sports when I was in college and I'm glad I don't have to do it 
more than a couple of days of the year now because it's a racket and it never stops. Yeah, it never stops. I mean, you know, college football is pretty much, uh, you know, 11-month-a-year job. When you Before, you know, you recruit a little bit here and there, but, I mean, it's constant. I mean, I, I remember, you know, hearing Urban Meyer talk about how, you know, he was just constantly recruiting like after they won a national title. Like, he was literally on the phone, on the field, calling recruits. Like, it literally never stops. Yeah, so uh, we won't, you know, with that being said, we won't <laughs> belabor the point here and talk any more about it. Everyone can check out BTN's coverage on, uh, on social media or on our, on our reruns. And uh, I want to kick it over to basketball before we talk more football because the bowl season for the Big Ten is still a little over a week away. And, uh, you know, it's the holidays, so hopefully you're getting a little more time off, time to relax now with uh, the crazy season in the rearview mirror. But hoops is still kind of in full swing. This week is pretty quiet, but we've had some eventful uh, past couple of weeks. So interesting note, actually, that we'll start off with because it's kind of stats-oriented. You know, this will be outdated by the time it comes out on Thursday, but we're heading into Wednesday night with Northwestern and Michigan State facing off. And if Michigan State loses, every team would be one and one in conference after tonight. I don't think that's ever happened, or it's pretty rare, right? Well, just the fact that all thirteen home teams have won in those games, which is which is crazy. I know that hasn't happened in at least the last twenty years that that a conference actually had its home teams win its first thirteen conference games. I know that for sure hasn't happened uh, in this century in any league. And so the, the fact that we've been able to see that, we've seen three AP top five teams lose to unranked teams on the road. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, you know, the the major players holding serve. It's Penn State pounding Maryland. It's Illinois, you know, beating up on Michigan. You know, it's Minnesota beating up on Ohio State. I mean, of those 13 wins, eight have been by double digits. So, I mean, there's been very few you know, nail biters, down in the wire type games. You know, the home teams have taken care of business, and it doesn't matter which team has been ranked. It doesn't, that hadn't seemed to matter at all. Right. The, uh, the interesting thing, uh, just following t- tonight's game, is how unpredictable Northwestern has been. You know, I don't expect them to beat Michigan State, but with the nature of the league and the nature of that team in particular, who knows? Maybe it'll be a 14 0 uh, run for the home team and, and a 14 way tie at top. Big Ten, that'd be kind of wild. That would be wild. I mean, the fact that, you know, on Monday I was able to wake up and see Michigan State atop the standings by themselves <laughs> at 1-0 right. was, pretty, was pretty crazy. Um, yeah, again, hopefully, as a Michigan State fan, hopefully uh, they are 2-0 and and Northwestern is 0-2 and everybody else is 1-1. Um, you know, you know with, the pred- with the unpredictability of the league, I wouldn't say anything would shock me. I think Michigan State is still trying to figure a lot of things out. And so, you know, if they sleepwalk in this game, you know, they might get beat. Yeah, I want to get a little deeper into Michigan State in just a moment, but talking about the ranked teams, they've been one of four Big Ten teams ranked in the top five. And then speaking of that, Penn State finds itself in the rankings for the first time since, I think, 96, right? Uh, A huge accomplishment for them. Were they the longest drought in the Big Ten? Or I guess if you count Rutgers, they they might have not been ranked for since the early 90s. Or if, but if in not, terms of, ever. But. Yeah, yeah, Rutgers has definitely been ranked, but it's been a long time. Uh, yeah, the fact that Penn State got there. And just imagine where they would be if they didn't blow the Ole Miss game. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's crazy considering how well they've played this year. Uh, you know, they put – you have the Maryland win, the Georgetown win on the road, the Syracuse win on the neutral site. Um, they came back to beat Alabama over the weekend. The, the one thing that's normally – know been a bugaboo for them in the pat chambers era is they've had a home game mm-hmm. that they lose that they shouldn't lose i thought the alabama one might be that one i thought the alabama one the yale one had a chance yes to the be. yale one was early in the season i thought that thing could damage their tournament hopes you know before they even really got off the ground but they, they've kind of survived those two scares exactly and, and that's the thing like when you fully enter conference play you want to have a gaudy record because you know you're going to pick up losses in a competitive league. And what's hurt them is that they've pulled off upsets against good Big Ten teams in the past, but they've had so many black marks on their resume and non-conference that they weren't able to overcome that to make the tournament. They don't have those this year. Um, I think they played Central Connecticut on Friday, and I think that's the last you know, non-conference opponent they really play. They might, they might have one more after that, but the fact that they don't have any blemishes that are, you know, like gaudy, I think will certainly help their tournament case. 
Yeah, so congrats to Pat Chambers for uh, getting them off to such a good start. Like, every year that I've been here pretty much, it seems like Penn State was maybe about to break through. They had a lot of talent, but couldn't get in the tournament this year. It looks like they're uh, on the right path as long as, like you said, they don't stumble unexpectedly. And then, of course, you know, I like Pat Chambers because he has called me on more than one occasion Justin Timberlake, so I'll take that compliment. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give him as much good press as, as – uh, as he wants. So, shout out to, to Pat. Another team that, um, you know, has been after a, an early setback that has been pretty impressive is Iowa, especially with Luca Garza. Um, it's kind of a double edged sword now because Jordan Bohannon has to take a seat for the rest of the season. He's going to redshirt. But do you think Iowa is a team with staying power even despite Bohannon's loss? I mean, Garza has been probably a big breakout star in college basketball. They can still score, and uh, they've had some big wins as well. Now, I feel like Iowa's a team where if you catch them on the wrong night, things could go really, really poorly for mm-hmm. you because, like you said, they can still score. You know, Garza's a, you know, a matchup nightmare. But even the fact, you know, he scores 44 against Michigan and they give up 100 and they still lose by double digits. So that's the, the give and the take with Iowa. You know, it's a team that can score. It's a team that can shoot. They like to play fast. But some nights they just don't feel like guarding you. Right. And so if they're in Carver Hawkeye and threes are falling and guards is going to work and getting other teams' bigs in foul trouble, you know, Iowa could pull off some upsets. You know, we saw that last year. But then there are other times where threes aren't falling and, you know, their zone's not working and they are kind of disinterested on that end of the floor. And, you know, you see them lose some games they shouldn't. So I think, you know, probably bubble team – um, at best, unless they pull off some upsets. How big of a loss is Bohannon? Because I know last year he was on that wild run, hitting all those clutch shots. This year, obviously, not 100%. So how much production are they losing in him? I, I think that's a huge loss. Um, the fact that, you know, like you said, he was captain clutch for them. I mean, we saw him. We saw them pull. He pulled Iowa out of the fire a lot, uh, whether it was Indiana twice, uh, the Northwestern game. You know, he would hit a lot of big shots. It was a guy you always had to respect from three, especially, you know, off of offensive rebounds. He could pull it from anywhere. So I think they're going to have to be kind of more big-oriented with him out. Um, I'll be curious to see how uh, they played in those first few games to try to get adjusted when he's not in there. All right, so you were talking a little bit about Michigan State earlier, your squad, your alma mater, preseason number one. Do you have more confidence in this Michigan State team right now or Michigan, who has also had a couple losses back-to-back but got off to a great start early on? Uh, So it's funny you ask that because I feel like Michigan State is really in a holding pattern, and I think that holding pattern could potentially last throughout the season because I truly feel, and and this was kind of in my mind, confirmed even more after reading the Free Press article about Cassius Winston over the weekend. I feel like the entire team is kind of, I won't say held back because that's not the best word for it, but they're kind of waiting to see how Cassius approaches everything because he's obviously going through a tragedy. There's no telling when he's going to, you know, be able to respond from that it might not be during the season and so you know during the article you would read that basketball was his first love and that was this place where he can have fun and escape and basketball isn't fun to him right now Mm -hmm. and you know during the Duke game he wasn't really interested and who can blame him and so I feel like you know the team kind of feeds off of him he's their leader he's the guy that picks everybody else up and I feel like they're kind of tight because he's unsure of how to handle everything and until that changes I feel like they won't reach their full potential now who knows maybe in a month maybe in a week maybe in two months you know he's kind of sort of back to normal and things kind of fix themselves but I really think we're in a a wait and see with them uh, as for Michigan, I feel like that might be a bit of a market correction. You know, I think that, you know, after they beat up on Iowa State, they beat up on North Carolina. He's not very good this year. Right. Yeah. We, we, we see Iowa State, you know, they get housed by Iowa at mm-hmm. home. You know, we've seen North Carolina, you know, get housed by Ohio State at home, lose to Wofford at home. The Gonzaga win is really impressive. The Gonzaga win, that, that will hold yeah. for the whole year. Yeah. Uh, Gonzaga got healthy, you know, won at Arizona. You know, even though they Michigan beat them when they had a couple guys out, I mean, they controlled that whole game, so I'm taking nothing away from them on that. 
that win will definitely have some shelf life. But we've seen them kind of struggle since Atlantis, and I feel like maybe they aren't the the top five team, but they should still be, you know, battling for a top four seed in the Big Ten tournament. Yeah, it's interesting. I had not read that article about Cassius Winston, but it kind of goes back to what we talked about maybe a month ago after uh, Cassius's brother passed away, and you kind of said, you know, what's going to happen when the cameras move on and and the attention, you know, shifts somewhere else, and Cassius still has to endure what he's going through. And, you know, we're seeing it play out kind of right now. I wasn't aware of Cassius' mental state or how he's approaching this season, but like you said, uh, basketball kind of takes a backseat regardless. And then in terms of Michigan, it's interesting because Franz Wagner and DeJulius, and I don't know if it extends to Livers because he's been their, their leading scorer, but some of the uh, supplementary players like Wagner and DeJulius, like some nights they will show up and, and go off, and that's to be expected from young players. And some nights the bench is more quiet, and it, has to, it falls on Livers, Teske, and Simpson. So with them, I think they're going to be a little consistent, which – I don't see any problem with in their first year under Howard. I think Juwan has done a good job keeping that team pretty even keeled. He's always upbeat with the press. You know, it doesn't seem to be stressing out on the sidelines. His demeanor is never flustered. Uh, so I think he'll do a good job keeping them balanced. It'll just be interesting to see how things progress, especially if things start to go south there. I don't think they will. I think they're a good team. I think they'll make the tournament easily. But I just want to see how he manages the full season there. Yeah, agree. You know, and I think. Atlantis obviously was a gift and a curse. I mean, you went three high-profile games like that. Expectations were kind of low to you know to begin the season because you didn't really know what to expect with Beeline gone and so many guys leaving and Howard you know keeping everything close to the vest. You really didn't know what to expect at all from Michigan. So then they have that run in Atlantis, and you're like, oh, okay, this team maybe they're top five, top ten team. You know, they get hammered at Louisville. You know, Illinois pretty much controls that whole game. They lose to Oregon at home, and Oregon didn't have one of their best players. And then also in that game, you see John Teske barely see the floor because Oregon went small and basically took him out of the game. You know, Xavier Simpson lost the point guard battle with Peyton Pritchard. And so things that they rely on, you know, those veteran guys like you mentioned – didn't have good games in a big spot and you just wonder if they can win games against good teams when that stuff happens yeah pretty reminded me of uh Cassius Winston a little bit just kind of an undersized guy who controls tempo controls pace got where he wanted to get yeah. you know took over when he needed to that was an impressive game from Oregon um you know the theme has been top five teams losing not just in the Big Ten but across the sport and another one lost. I didn't see this one coming at all. I didn't really get to watch this game either because I was watching NFL this past Sunday. But Ohio State losing at Minnesota. You know, Marcus Carr kind of did what we'd been waiting for and more for uh, Minnesota. And then I also didn't see or anticipate Nebraska beating Purdue. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to see two teams in Nebraska and Minnesota who we thought would be pretty down this year, especially Nebraska being capable of rising up and beating some of the upper tier teams in the conference. Yeah, it's funny, you know, when you saw Nebraska those first couple of games and you're like, oof, like, mm-hmm. I don't even know. I'm, I mean, can this team win more than three Big Ten games? Right. I mean, it looked really, really dire early. But it seemed like something clicked uh, in that Indiana game to kind of figure some things out. You know, if they protect the ball a little better, if they try a little harder on the boards, you know, that they can be in some of these games because they play loose, they play free. And when shots are going in, obviously confidence goes up. And we've seen Fred Hoiberg win this way. But I just think they're going to be such a, an up-and-down team that you're going to have performances like the Indiana and the Purdue game. And then you're going to see them, you know, struggle against some teams that they probably shouldn't struggle against. So I just think, you know, kind of similar to the rest of the league, where if you catch them on a good night, like, you might lose. Right. And there's going to be some other nights where you're like – how did this team beat Purdue because they look awful tonight? Um, so I just think that's just going to be another place where you go in the pinnacle bank and you don't bring your A game, like you can get beat. And as for Minnesota, I mean, you know, they played the world pretty much in the non-conference. I mean, they were all over the place. And, you know, Marcus Carr was the best player on the floor on Sunday, you know, dropped 35. Uh, you know, Cam Mack had the triple-double in the Nebraska-Purdue game, so two – Great performances from some transfer guards coming in that we didn't see the year before. Mm-hmm. Uh, first triple double, first triple ever, double yeah. in Nebraska, Nebraska history. history. So, 
You know, the fact that Ohio State even gave up 84 in that game, it was a little surprising too. It's not that they lost, but like defense has been their calling card, and Marcus Carr got wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Yeah, I'm not worried about Ohio State. I think, no. um, you know, look at Dwayne Washington back here soon, hopefully. They're still the deepest team in the Big Ten. I think right now, undisputed best team in the Big Ten. Uh, I am a little worried now about Purdue. I promised I would not hit the eject button on them. Uh, you know, they ease a lot of uh, fears with their dominant win over Virginia. But they're having trouble scoring the ball. And I don't know if that's something that's going to persist all year. I know they need to get more out of Wheeler and no Jell Eastern. Do you think this is going to be something that kind of is a boogeyman all year? Uh, the offensive woes, do you think they'll get it figured out? And we don't know. You know, Harms will hopefully be back soon from that concussion. But uh, if he's out of there, then that team looks completely different. Yeah, I mean, the, the one promising sign was that Trevion Williams, you know, played really well to, uh, against Nebraska the other night. Um, he was kind of, you know, missing an action for most of the season. You know, and we saw him when Purdue started to, to make that run a year ago. Trevion Williams became a huge part of that before it became guard-oriented with Carson and Klein. But Trevion was a big, big piece for them last year, and I think he'll have to be this year because they don't shoot it as well. You know, Nojo Eastern has really, really struggled to score. Aaron Wheeler hasn't taken the step that a lot of people thought he might. And so, you know, Jahai Proctor, when he's making shots, they're good. When he's not, they really, really struggle. And so I think they're going to have to rely a lot more on Trevion to kind of get them out of those scoring droughts. I forgot to mention we are talking about their loss in Nebraska. I wish the Bulls still had Fred Hoiberg. Look, I'm glad he's at Nebraska. I'm glad, I'm glad for the conference that he's in the league. But I keep remembering that he was just the Bulls coach recently, and seeing what's going on there now, I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, that that <laughs> definitely seemed like a downgrade. I'm just glad to see my guy Denzel starting to play again. Is he? And, you know, I can't even watch uh, the Bulls right now. It's just such a lost cause for me. But <laughs> yeah, he was buried on the bench for a while. But you know, he uh, hit a big three to, to tie the game against the Clippers. Again, a game they eventually won in OT and played well the other night against OKC. So, right, Jim Boylan, play the young guys, man. Play my man Denzel. Miles Bridges with a monster spin cycle Tomahawk jam last night. I don't know if you saw well, that. We know he can do that. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Um, all right, before we move on to a little bit of football bowl talk, there are a few teams we haven't talked too much about yet. And just want a general, maybe not guess, but educated prediction from you on who, from kind of that middle cluster that we haven't really touched on, you think will emerge and maybe break into that top tier in the Big Ten? I'm talking like Illinois, Wisconsin, Purdue I'd throw in there, Indiana, and we talked about Iowa. Maybe there's teams that could come and go out of that clump, but who do you think out of those teams uh, you know, could maybe get a bye or even two in the Big Ten tournament? Uh, of that group, Illinois seems like the most talented team of that bunch. I mean, Kofi Coburn is a monster uh, we we see the potential that Georgie has. Um, we saw, you know, he, he cracked 30 a couple times last year. Still think it's kind of a weird fit with him as the four and Kofi as the five, trying to manage those minutes together. The spacing can be a little out of whack. But we still haven't really seen Io, you know, take over games and be the NBA prospect that we all thought he would be when he came back to school. Mm-hmm. Big, I mean, I got a huge man crush on Andres Felice. He's got to stop turning the ball over late, though. Yeah, that's, that's one fair. Thing, but that's fair, but he is yeah, very good, dude, and and, and he has a, he has a Kyrie Irving knack for finishing in traffic. Hey, he is tough as nails. Right. I mean, the fact that you know a little guy like that can go up and just sky over people and get rebounds—that's all effort. And so, like, that's a guy you'd love to have on your team. I think they're the most talented team of those teams we haven't mentioned. You know, Indiana with Trace Jackson Davis. Obviously, he's a huge problem. Uh, you know, Rob Finnis, he's healthy, he could do some things. Devontae Green. Devontae Green, you know, he's still a little streaky, but, you know, when they have it going, like, they could be dangerous, especially at home. I just don't know if they could play well enough on the road to actually get in that top four. Yeah, it's interesting to think that if Illinois would have held on against Maryland in the game they blew a 15-point second-half lead, they'd probably be ranked yep. top 15 or 20 right now. Um, you know, maybe it's one of those things where they need to – learn the hard way and get over that hump and then now the season turns around kind of like their their football season went i don't know uh if it's going to play out that way long way to go but you can kind of maybe see that in their miami losses as a wake-up call because that was when it probably got as ugly as it's going to get and then things have seemed to pick up from there 
Yeah, and it seems like in those two losses, the Miami loss and the Maryland loss, late in the game, it was I.O., clear out, let me do it myself. And that's just not the way to go. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's the way to go, especially if you're going to have Kofi and Georgie on the court. Just not enough space for you to operate. Um, I think going inside out probably works best there, especially in that Miami game. I mean, everything was off, you know, dribble handoff or or weave, you know, everything going to the rack from there. It wasn't the 1-4, clear out, let me do it myself kind of stuff. So, I think if, if Io and, and that team could kind of just play within the offense, I mean, they're going to get so many opportunities from those bigs that I think they're going to be a really, really big problem if they could be consistent. Yeah, agreed. So we'll have to see uh, who emerges, who kind of makes a name for themselves, and if the current teams can remain ranked as we go through the gauntlet here. Uh, H, let's talk some football before we wrap up. I won't call this like our official bowl preview, but I don't know if we're going to be able to get together before the games play out. So try and get to as much as we can here um kind of like how the big 10 has nine or ten teams that could compete for tournament spot the big 10 has nine teams in bowls so it's going to be a busy bowl season we got games kicking off on december 27th and then we got a little post new year's day action with uh indiana and tennessee in the gator bowl on january 2nd so nice nice long window there to enjoy some big 10 football and kind of bring everyone together and root for the common cause. I kind of enjoy that every year, seeing, especially on the social media platforms, when fans all kind of get behind each other's teams and, and root each other on. So we'll see if it plays out like it did a couple years ago when the Big Ten, I think, took seven out of eight or something like that. Um, so let's start off the top with the first game and your alma mater. Just give me one or two things. We'll run through pretty quick. But something that jumps out to you about Michigan State playing Wake Forest in New York City in the pinstripe? Because I don't know much about Wake Forest, and I don't know much about a lot of these teams that Big Ten teams will be facing. So we'll start at the top there. What jumps out about the Demon Deacons in that matchup? Uh, well, it's a matchup of both teams who were pretty highly ranked at one point during the year. Uh, both kind of fell on hard times, especially on offense. Uh, quarterback Jamie Newman for Wake, once he got hurt, their offense kind of went in the tank. He's questionable for this game. Um, I think if he doesn't play, it's a game Michigan State should win. Uh, Kenny Willickis, Rayquan Williams both said they would play in this bowl and not you know, sit out mm-hmm. for NFL stuff. So hopefully you know, those two senior guys kind of lead the way and get them a win. It'll be cool out there in Yankee Stadium. I was like watching that. and It's just a, a nice visual, hopefully. And Big Ten does well in that Yeah, game. and hopefully the East Coast Spartan alums can enjoy that and enjoy the game coming to them. Um, we'll head to the other coast now. We got USC – playing in sort of a home game against Iowa. I don't know how much USC and that fan base will get up for the, the San Diego Credit Union, uh, whatever the Poinsettia Bowl used to be, or if, I don't even know what it's called now. But uh, Iowa is going out west, and cool destination for them. They get out of uh, Florida for the first time exactly. in a while. So I think they'll be pretty excited to head out there, and the fans should be as well. What do you see uh, going up against a USC squad that you know might – I just don't know like where the mindset is in, in that USC team, that USC fan base. I don't know much about their team, so fill me in a little bit if you could. Uh, well, say it's a high-octane offense. like to throw it all over the place. You know, it's a team that's fifth in the country in passing, playing a team that's fifth in the nation in scoring defense in Iowa. So your classic, you know, Pac-12, throw it around, you know, try to score as many points as possible against your Norton, your Big Ten, Iowa you know, play in the phone booth kind of game, and I think whatever style wins out will probably determine who wins the game. All right, contrasting styles under nice weather out there in San Diego. Uh, A team that will definitely be up for a bowl game, no one likely sitting on this one, is Memphis taking on Penn State in the Cotton Bowl. Uh, It'll be a cool new platform for Penn State to play on, but a big stage for Memphis to play on. So what do you uh, see out of that matchup? Yeah, that, that group of five team, they usually do really well uh, in these type of games. You know, ever since the New Year's Six started with a group of five champ, so to speak, uh, is obligated to go to one of these bowls. And, you know, we've seen UCF, you know, they've beaten Baylor, they've beaten Auburn. You know, we saw Boise beat Arizona, Western Michigan play mm-hmm. Wisconsin really tough. You know, at UCF played LSU tough. So even in the games they've lost, they've, you know, still performed well. I'm curious to see where Memphis is at. You know, their head coach, Mike Norvell, left to take the Florida State job. So you wonder, you know, just kind of where their mindset will be. 
uh, Penn State's offensive coordinator, Ricky Ronnie, left to take the Old Dominion job. So you got some moving parts there, uh, but it would be a really nice win if Penn State could get it, you know, in a supposed rebuild year to win 11 games and win a Cotton Bowl. Like, that would be pretty awesome. Yep, and another good recruiting class today. To exactly. Build on. Uh, I'll skip the Fiesta Bowl, leave that for last. It's on that same day, and jump ahead to the Red Box Bowl. Illinois like uh, is back. You mentioned it earlier in our stat rundown we did. Back in a bowl for the first time since 2014, and kind of a similar situation. Uh, you know, Cal's not on the level that USC's been at, but they're going down the road uh, in the Bay Area, so it's not exactly a destination for them as, as it is for Illinois and Illinois fans. What is that matchup going to look like? Illinois figures to be much healthier than they were at the end of the season. What is Cal going to bring to the table? Uh, Cal, really good defense, familiar face, familiar name with Justin Wilcox as the head coach. Uh, was the Wisconsin mm-hmm. defensive coordinator in 2016. Uh, it was a team that was undefeated in the top 15 at one point during the year. They had some injuries at quarterback, and so they really had issues of moving the ball. You know, obviously that could be a problem against the Illinois team that likes to turn you over. Um, obviously, Illinois has some issues in terms of yardage and whatnot, but I think it's a game that I think I saw Cal was favored by a touchdown or so. I'd be shocked if the game was uh, a blowout either way. Uh, probably be one of those, you know, last five minutes of the game. We'll see what happens. If Illinois could try to pull another one out of the fire. All right, moving on, New Year's Day. We got Michigan, Alabama in the Citrus Bowl. Uh, I don't know if anyone's made this joke yet, but it just came to me. It should be like the sit-out bowl for Alabama because I feel like they will not be playing their uh, full roster even close. I don't know about Michigan. I know they've had guys sit out in the past, but um, I haven't heard anything official yet. I think the Alabama uh, roster depletion is just assumed at this point because it's their first non-college football playoff bowl since that tournament's inception. So what do you see out of this matchup knowing that we probably don't know who we're going to see in the field? Yeah, so I think the you know, the matchups to watch, or at least the position to watch, would be receiver. Uh, Jerry Judy surprisingly decided that he was going to play in the game okay. for Alabama. Um, as for Michigan, you know, we'll see if Donovan Peoples-Jones and Nico Collins decide to play. Um, I know both have been mentioned as NFL prospects if they decide to leave. Um, and again, like you said, Alabama, just their motivation in general, you know, to see how they are. You know, they kind of book in the decade with Citrus Bowl trips after a bunch of New Year's Six Bowls and playoffs in between. Uh, the last time that happened, they shellacked Michigan State. We'll see if Michigan can have, can give them a better game or potentially even win the game. You know, Michigan's been in Florida for a while now in these, these bowl games under Harbaugh. I think it's the fourth time they're in Florida in his five seasons there. Uh, hadn't gone so well against Florida State. Um they beat Florida, lost to Florida last year. So we'll see if they can kind of break that streak and start a new one. All right, another Big Ten team facing Auburn in a bowl. This time it's the Outback Bowl. Minnesota facing War Eagle Tigers. I think Minnesota is a better overall team than Purdue was last year when they went down and got smoked by Auburn in the Music City Bowl. Do you think they're, uh, they'll be able to stand up to Auburn albeit a different Auburn team, stand up to them a little better than Purdue did last year down south? Uh, I think so. I think uh, they'll, they're more balanced than Purdue was a year ago. Um, I think the Purdue thing was the classic, hey, we overachieved to get to this point. Auburn, we underachieved to get to this mm-hmm. point. And the talent gap was enormous, and Auburn was motivated and decided to put up 56 points in the first half. I don't think we'll see anything close to that this year. I think Minnesota should be able to keep up. Got to watch out for a defensive tackle, Brown, number five. I mean, that's a big fella for Auburn. He's super mobile, super athletic to be that big. So he's going to try to be in Tanner Morgan's face the whole game, uh, try to stop Rodney Smith in that running game. So just keep your eyes on him. And if he's making a lot of plays, it might be trouble for the Gophers. All right, Wisconsin, back to the Rose Bowl for the first time, I think since 2011. Me if I'm the, wrong uh, there. The 2012 2012. Season. Okay, yep. so still I know they're excited and pumped to be back out there facing Oregon. What are the Ducks like? Because, you know, I, I just think of them always playing fast. I know Justin Herbert's talented. Uh, I still think of Oregon of, like, my childhood and high school days, having the flashy jerseys and the fast team. Is that stereotype still applicable to them? Not really. And, you know, 
ever since Mario Cristobal took over, you know, they just kind of made them a defense first team. I mean, they're in the top 15 nationally in scoring defense. You mean Chip Kelly's not the coach anymore? I know, it's weird, right? <laughs> now, nah, they still, you know, they'll still spread you out and they still want to, you know, run RPO and they still got fast running backs and playmakers all over the field. Justin Herbert still likes to throw it around, but they're a physical team. And, you know, everybody kind of talked about how physical Utah was and how they would take it to Oregon, and clearly that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Oregon's physicality won out in that game. Don't know how physical they'll be in terms of being able to stop Jonathan Taylor. Um, I think that could be an issue for them because um, we've seen them, you know, give up a lot of points against the Washington States of the world and, and teams like that. And, you know, last year it was 7-6 in a Red Box Bowl against, you know, Michigan State. They're going to need a lot more than seven to beat this Wisconsin team. All right. Last bowl game before we talk Fiesta. It's the January 2nd game. When we think the Bulls are over, we're going to remember that this one's still out there. And it's an exciting one because, you know, Indiana hasn't got that statement win yet. I don't know if this would qualify, but a win over Tennessee is a great way to go into an offseason and a great way to close a unexpected – well, not unexpectedly, but a – uh, pleasant surprise of a season, I think, for for a lot of uh, Indiana fans. Close with nine wins, I believe. If they if they close this one out, so what do you expect to see between the Vols and the Hoosiers? So yeah, Tennessee's a team that came on strong late in the year. You know, they were two and five to start the year, one five straight to get to a bowl. Um, and granted, the five wins weren't exactly against great teams, but hey, you know Indiana's eight wins weren't exactly against great teams either. Tennessee was in a bad spot. Like and fans Tennessee were was in revolting. a really yeah. bad spot. You know, especially you know blowing games they had no business losing, but they found a way to rally. And, and you know, credit to Jeremy Pruitt for that. Uh, Indiana obviously will be super motivated. You know, try to get that ninth win, like you said. You know, that which would tie school record for most wins in the season. You know, the fact they haven't won a bowl game since 1991. I mean, you know, Indiana certainly has a lot of the intangibles here. The problem is when Tennessee usually plays a Big Ten team in a bowl game, it usually does not go well for the Big Ten team. Um, you know, we saw that with Northwestern you know, a couple years ago in that Outback Bowl. I believe they've won three straight bowl games against Big Ten teams. So hopefully Indiana brings their A game and can keep Peyton Ramsey upright because that offense is really good. But – Caleb DeBoer, the OC, left to take the Fresno State out, job. Yep. So be curious to see what that offense looks like. All right, wrapping up, we got college football playoff semifinal, the Fiesta Bowl, Clemson versus Ohio State, the rematch of the 2016 Fiesta Bowl, Ohio State going up against the defending champs. First of all, I don't think we'll see anything like 2016, at least I hope not, because I can't, I can't take another Big Ten shutout in the college football playoff. Yeah, exactly. The fact that Ezekiel Elliott is the last Big Ten player to score in the playoff uh, is saying a lot. Uh, that's definitely been a problem with Michigan State and Ohio State both being blanked in the last two appearances. The fact that we're even in it uh, as a league is a good thing. I mean, 2016 is the last time the Big Ten was even in the playoff. Right. So, But like you said, I'd be very surprised if it was a blowout either way. I think this could have potentially been a championship game, if, if we're being honest. Mm-hmm. The fact that Clemson's favored as the three seed, I saw they would have been like a four and a half point favorite if they were playing LSU. Uh, so a lot of people think Clemson is still the best team in the country. You got the two longest win streaks in the nation. You got, you know, Heisman finalists all over the place. You probably had the two most underappreciated running backs in the nation, and J.K. Dobbins and Travis Etienne. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'll be pros all over the place. I think that's just that's going to be a really really fun matchup. Uh, if they keep Justin Fields upright, I think that offense, that Ohio State offense, could do a lot of things. That Clemson D line was amazing last year. It hasn't been as good this year. So I think that Ohio State should be able to move the ball against those guys. It's just whether or not they could stop those ridiculous receivers on Clemson. Yeah, and I understand. I know you mentioned it could have been a potential champ game matchup. I understand why, you know, why LSU theoretically moved ahead of Ohio State winning 37 to 10 but like at the end of the day i really don't like i mean yeah look at the, look I, at the full not. body of work it just seems too reactionary to move the tigers ahead of ohio state i mean ohio state still beat wisconsin pretty handily in the champ game first half struggles aside i know we're kind of we're two weeks past now so it seems uh a little outdated to be talking cfp rankings still but i think you know there's a case to be made that that ohio state should have had that locked up 
and they didn't do anything to lose that top spot. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the whole thing was based off of how the committee viewed Georgia. Um, I think the committee saw Georgia as this elite team when really they were only elite on one side of the ball. Mm-hmm. This is still a team that lost to, at home to a South Carolina team that was under 500 and didn't make a bowl. But for the second straight year, you could lose the SEC championship game and have two losses, and people still think, hey, well, what do you think about Georgia for the playoff? I'm not sure what it is about Georgia. I'm not sure if it's the proximity. or I'm not sure it's if just, it's the It's just the, way, like the whispers get going, and then the narrative gets started, and – and, you know, I, I sound like a tinfoil hat guy, but college football Twitter and college football media is a tight circle. And once those narratives swirl, it influences, I think, the mind of the committee. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I certainly think it's part of it. I mean, again, it's humans. And, you know, people mm-hmm. say, oh, well, you know, we don't want computers. Computers can't judge intangibles and this and that. But on the other side, I think humans can get swayed by a lot of stuff. Sure. And so, you know, if you kind of have an agenda or if you kind of think one way and that's just going to be the way you are and you aren't going to change, that could be equally as dangerous. Right. And Ohio State, regardless, is going to have to beat two great teams to win the national championship. Yep. Maybe this isn't our last football preview podcast, and we're sitting here in a couple of weeks talking about Ohio State's potential matchup with probably not Oklahoma, most likely most LSU. Like LSU. Yep. Um, but maybe, you know, that, that first they have to beat Clemson in a tough game in Arizona, and I, I hope they do. I know, you know, we're obviously going to root for our conference, but I'm not an Ohio State fan. But I hope they do because, to me, the contrast just at the top between Ryan Day and Dabo Swinney. I am so over. Ryan Day is such a like has been such a likable coach just to follow in his year, two years, I guess now that we've really had him front and center since he took over for those first three games, handled that with class and grace, and then faded to the background when Urban Meyer took back over. He has had zero missteps since he took over as a full-time head coach at Ohio State. Every clip and every inside access thing we've seen, every interview, it seems like he's been uh, very pleasant to deal with, and it seems like he's beloved by his players and his team, and rightfully so. And then on the other side, you have a guy that has uh, grew stale on me very quickly. I've been on the – I guess I've been off the Dabo train for quite a while. I've been trying to recruit people to come along with me. And at this point, I think uh, more people are, are kind of coming around as – we see him make a big deal out of, of rankings and you know being undervalued, underappreciated. When really, it's pretty accurate because it's whatever perception of them, I think is fine because they haven't really played anybody. And you know, I think coaches like that sometimes need to create boogeymen to motivate themselves and and their teams. So I don't know your thoughts. You sound like you're nodding along, and you look like you're nodding along. Agree with me a little bit. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm ranting now, but I'm off the Dabo train completely. Yeah, I'd say, you know, I enjoyed the story early on of a guy who was an interim and, you know, it was a program that was known for blowing games in creative ways to the point where it was called Clemsoning Mm -hmm. if you did something bad. And the fact that an interim guy that people thought shouldn't get the job was able to turn that job into a national power, I think is commendable. Unfortunately, he has become pretty obnoxious with the whole no one respects us. And if we would have lost, you know, we'd have been out of the playoff. We might have even been ranked 10th and all this like stuff. You, you know, you were kind of mentioning, make, you know, making up a boogeyman to, you know, motivate his team. Like, come on, man. I mean, you won 28 straight games. We Everyone knows you're great. Everyone was saying how you need to avoid being the two because you don't want to play Clemson. Like, people have talked all year about how good your team is. Like, please stop doing this. No one respects us stuff. Yeah, and I don't want to be, like, just a hater because, like you said, what he's done is remarkable there. It's been a, uh awesome buildup from, like you said, a what was a punchline at one point. And I will also say he was one of the first people to reach out in support of Tyler Trent. That's always stuck with me as somebody who clearly gives back, especially to needy kids that are either football fans or attend his games or whatever. I've seen a lot of examples of it. But I still want him out of my face with a lot of this, you know, whining and all that. Yes. And uh, our team, our conference representative, gets a chance to stick it to him in Arizona. So I hope they do. Um, H, we've gone 40 minutes. I think that's a record. Absolutely a record. I could keep going, but... I think we both want to get home after a long day so i will let you go here and i appreciate you 
joining me unless you got something else to add. No, I think that's about it. But you know, we're approaching the holiday season, so happy holidays to you and yeah, absolutely. to all the family, and enjoy family time and good food and good football. And hopefully, in a couple weeks, we can talk Ohio State LSU preview and watch some good hoops in between. Absolutely, amen. Like you said, happy holidays to the listeners, to you, and uh, we back soon. All right, sounds good, man. All right, thanks once again to Harold and Ed for joining the show. Really appreciate them jumping on during the holiday season. Um, safe travels to everyone out there and uh, everyone celebrating the holidays, going home for the holidays, taking off work, whatever. Uh, hopefully, we have a holiday you know, edition of the Take Them Podcast one more before 2020 gets here. going to try and get a podcast done in Arizona uh, at the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, going out there to provide some digital coverage of Ohio State and their historic game against Clemson. And hopefully we can track down a couple of Ohio State-related guests while I'm out in the Phoenix area. So stay tuned for that, hopefully. If not, uh, we'll talk to you regardless in 2020 with a Big Ten basketball season. Still plenty of juice left in it. Still to go. So 18 games left for every team postseason and then we potentially have a national championship in Big Ten football for the first time since 2015 so keep it locked and uh, subscribe if you have not already so you don't miss an episode and quick shout out to everyone out there who helps make the show possible Wes White and Julie Bronder my producers and one more shout out to everyone out there for listening happy holidays and we will talk to you soon here on Take 10 Podcast